everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a very special conversation for you today with Michael Cruz Kane. I'll tell you about Michael in a second. But first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and perhaps we'll read a few next time. And if you like the pod, please follow or subscribe to be notified every time we post a new episode. So let me tell you a little bit about Michael Cruz Kane. He's a comedian, actor, and writer based in New York City. He is currently a staff writer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, where his work has earned him a Peabody Award, a WGA Award, and three Emmy nominations. Acting credits include HBO's The White House Plumbers and High Maintenance, as well as Apple TV's Severance and Helpsters, among others. Michael also has a Signal Award-winning and Webby-nominated podcast about grief, A Good Cry, with notable guests that include Stephen Colbert, Nicole Byer, Joel Kim Booster, and Nora McInerney, and currently can be seen in his one-man show, Sorry for Your Loss, at the Manena Lane Theater in downtown Manhattan. Michael, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. You have an incredible story, which I want to get to in a second, and I want to get to your show, which is called Sorry for Your Loss, which is the whole premise of it. It is something I understand completely and have lived myself. But I want to just uh, go back in time a little bit and talk about young Michael, little Michael. What was childhood Michael like? Were you the class clown? Were you the typical funny guy? Were you doing all that cliche stuff that guys like me have to ask you, what are you doing um, <laughs> b- before we get into modern day Michael? Who were you as a kid? Um, yeah, so I guess it depends on on what specific uh, age we're we're zeroing in on. But as a little kid, two months. I want to know I how was... what were you like at two months old? <laughs> were you cracking jokes I in was, the crib? Uh, oh yeah, one of the funniest babies in the in the nursery. Uh, I was when I was little, like probably up until eighth grade. Mm-hmm. I was a social pariah. I had I had no friends. I had incredibly bad eczema that was visible frequently. Mm-hmm. One of the girls in my class started a rumor that the eczema scabs on the inside of my elbow were from doing heroin. And another girl once saw me scratching my butt and created a song called Diggin' for the Big Brown Beauty about how I was trying to pull crap out of my butt. That so that's like the that's the level that I was at. Did you go uh, did you go to the grade. fame did you go to the fame school? Because these kids <laughs> sound like really creative kids. Yeah, very talented insults, which I thought was really in retrospect, really, really lovely and fascinating. And by the and way, then, you should and, mention that the girl who made who made up that song, uh, that's Beyonce now. And she became Beyonce. I don't right. often say that, yeah. but yeah, her first big hit, digging for the big brown <laughs> beauty. <laughs> One hundred percent. No, it was not. It was not Beyonce. It was Lady Gaga. No, it wasn't. It was. It was a person who I'm sure is a perfectly normal, uh, positive contributor to society at this very at this very moment. That would be Taylor. Then, that would be Taylor um, Swift. <laughs> it's Taylor Swift. And at that, uh, at the same time, I was also doing like theater camps over the summer. Like that was a, uh, an area where I had acceptance. I was like, like so. I lived sort of like a dual life where in school I was a complete loser and at theater camp, I was a hero. So I, it forced me, I I became someone who was like very interested in performing Mm -hmm. and theater in general, because that was the only place where anyone was not horrific to me. 
on a 24 seven basis. And then in ninth grade, my school went to ninth grade, but you know, high school starts in ninth grade. So a lot of kids left and went to high school. And I also grew like six inches between eighth and ninth grades and became almost the only dude, one of the few dudes left. And because of a bunch of factors conspiring together was like an, became an alpha dog immediately. And it changed my, my whole life changed from ninth grade where I became, I was like the star of the, 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 we did theater in school now. And I was the star of the play in school because all of the good athletes had left. I became like the captain of the varsity <laughs> sports teams, which were, I mean, we got absolutely throttled on a daily basis, but within my school, I became like a, a popular kid. No, oh, that's an awesome story. Where'd you go to theater camp? My school was called the foot school. F O O T E. Podiatry. The, the school. Ha- <laughs> yeah. It's a big school for kids who at a very young age are interested in toenails, et cetera. And it had a summer camp, the foot school summer camp taught by this fellow named Julian, uh, Julian Slosh, Schloss, Schlossberg, who was the guy who like, you know, nurtured my love of theater. He was a great teacher. So I did that every summer for several summers while I was a kid. Mm, the foot camp. That's great. Come on, kids. Today we're doing yeah. pedicures from <laughs> nine to 11. And you were bar mitzvah in Israel? Yeah, okay, you've done some deep dive here. I, I do my I was, homework. I, I was up until so my dad's family's Jewish. My mom's family is Catholic. Up until I was 13, I basically did no Jewish stuff except for like the occasional Passover. Mm-hmm. And around 13, my grandmother was like, oh crap, we've you know disrespected our ancestors. Let's try to push it all in to this bar mitzvah, which we did in Israel. And I learned my bar mitzvah through an audio tape. Like I learned it phonetically. I didn't have any idea what I was saying. Was it like a Tony Roberts got... tape? Like a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Tony Robbins, a lot of like, I had to walk across hot coals <laughs> and it went so badly. I didn't know. I had no idea what I was saying. So it's impossible to memorize because if you don't know what you're saying, it's just a long soliloquy of complete gibberish. Mm-hmm. So then I, at the actual bar mitzvah, the rabbi effectively had to like Cyrano de Bergerac me the entire, <laughs> my entire Torah portion. He had to do everything into my ear and then I would try to parrot out what he had just said. Now, were you doing this at the Wailing Wall or some historic location? In fact, it was on top of Masada, which is wow. one of the great historical sites in the history of the Jews. It's quite a history that uh, Jews w- have, by the way. I'm a Jew. I'm actually sitting here in a studio with two other Jews. It's like a whole big Jewy thing. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. I think one of my main goals through podcasting is to convert as many people to Judaism as possible. Jew casting, we call it. Jew casting. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I've never heard that before, but uh, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm sure (laughs) someone like Mark Maron will be doing it tomorrow. Because, of course, he's looking for a way to break out, unlike me, who's (laughs) thriving in the world of Jew casting. And you're half Filipino. Yes. My mom's side, which is Catholic and Filipino, is, uh, well, that's the, the, I don't have the end to that sentence. They're great. I love them. Yeah, no, it's like I don't come across many Filipino Jews. I would say there are probably eight of us (laughs) in the world. My sibling, I actually met one the other day, and the two of us meeting face to face caused a rift in the space time continuum. 
and all kinds of stuff like monkeys with wings and stuff flew in through that rift. And it's going to, as we all read about it in the news, I'm sure. Did your family sit around like wondering who's Filipino Jewish? Like when I was a kid, my father was obsessed with who's Jewish. And like literally we would sit around and he'd be like, <laughs> Paul Newman, he's Jewish. And, and then it would get crazy. Muhammad Ali, he's Jewish. I'm like, no, dad, Muhammad Ali is not Jewish. Like would, the idea of, of trying to claim them though, just to be like, we're, no, we're, we're snapping them up. We're saying Muhammad Ali's a Jew. We're going to take Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> But the older he got, the more outlandish the claims became. You know, the Pope's Jewish. Um, and yeah, so, I like trying to take Muhammad Ali, who has the least Jewish name in the history of the world. Yeah. And be like, that, no, that guy's a Jew. The Muslim Jews, we call them. And so I've read that you refer to yourself as you followed like Judaism light. So that's kind of where you yeah, are well, today. I, yeah, we don't. We don't really practice Judaism, but we have a lot of family and also my son's best friend. His family's from Israel and they're Jewish. So we celebrate all the things with them. No, some of your some of your best friends are Jews. Some yeah, so no one no one calling me anti-Semitic can keep with that because I know at least five Jews. And we yeah, we try and celebrate whatever holidays are are we're invited to. And I also think that all like, in spite of the fact that I have no religious belief myself, I do think there are elements of faith, particularly like the historical elements that I think are amazing. Like, it's really cool to be reciting a prayer that some dude was saying in the desert thousands of years ago to tie yourself back to that person. It's hard to deny that there's something awesome about that. Yeah, in all seriousness, the history of the Jewish people, it is amazing. And there's times where I really wonder if I should care more about it all and get more involved <laughs> but i'm just you know you, you ever hear bill maher talk about religion just i'm like a hundred <laughs> times worse than he is when it comes to religion so are you currently writing <clears throat> on stephen colbert is that your day job uh, that is my day job but it doesn't exist at this moment because the writers are on strike yeah. but if we weren't on strike i would be writing for stephen yeah mm -hmm. and are you out picketing and doing your thing I'm not picketing almost almost every day. We we believe we have a righteous cause, mm -hmm. and the AMPTP, whatever I don't even know what that stands for, is a yeah, bunch you know of me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, is a bunch of bad bad dumb people, and we're trying to get the money that they owe us. Yeah, no, and it's you know there's a lot of people who don't make a bazillion dollars, and they're just working people, and they make a living and feed the kids and pay the rent, and it seems like they're getting cheated out of a lot of dough. For the writers, obviously, we're in it. I mean. Like for for the people who work at my job, for example, we were doing great because we're on a broadcast network. We write every day and mm -hmm. the show goes up every night. So we were doing great. But for like all of our siblings in the union, it's terrifying. Like they're slashing pay. Mm -hmm. What they want to do basically is turn the job of a television or movie writer into like an internship. And that is what they want to do with everything. Like we also think of like this struggle as a proxy for every struggle out there. Like, you know, they're going to take, they're going to automate the Ubers. They're going to, whatever it is, there has to be some way to stand up and say, Hey, you gotta, you gotta respect the working people, especially like for us, we make the product without the writers, you got nothing. So just pay us. That's all. Well, the whole industry has changed. Like with TV writers, it used to be when it was just the three networks and you do 22 or whatever, 24 episodes a season. And there was a lot of money going around and good pay. Now some of the shows have six episodes. The season is cramped. There's less writing. There's less pay. And the streaming revenue isn't distributed equitably. I have a lot of friends who are writers and actors, and but writers who are striking. And I don't know if the SAG-AFTRA is going to 
end up striking as well. But... I think SAG-AFTRA is going to strike too. And I, and I hope, I'm also in SAG-AFTRA. I hope we also strike because I think that will help move this negotiation along as well. When like Once the seriousness of what they've aggravated becomes clear, because it is like, there's so many issues, but the streaming thing is a big one where, you know, the streamers are making profits that are increasing and increasing right. and the writers are getting less and less of that money. And that's not right. Well, I wish you all a lot of luck on that, and hopefully it ends soon because it's it not only affects all the writers, but it's a giant ripple effect. All the ancillary yes. businesses <laughs> that are attached to production, and yeah, and just to say one thing about that before I turn this into a podcast about socialism <laughs> or whatever, is that one of the things that is really distressing for us during the strike is the effect that it has on the other people who work, whose rent is dependent right. on these shows getting made. Like whether it's freelancers or other union members who are sort of forced into solidarity with us. And it might mean, you know, you don't get paid for this day because you weren't able to do your job because we came and picketed outside your place of business. And that is like heartbreaking for the writers. And that's like, we, if we could give the crew a billion dollars, we would. And I think one of the tricky aspects here is that the powers that be above us really love the idea of the writers and the actors and the directors and the crew being at each other's throats to try and say, you know, you're the ones who are messing this up instead of looking to where the problem is, which is over all of our heads as the people above us try to take away the things that enable us to pay for, you know, whatever, our kids' school books, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what's happening with the Writers Guild and the strike and <clears throat> the producers is it's kind of a microcosm of what's happening in the country overall, where the rich get richer and the power is concentrated in the hands of a few. And that disparity just keeps growing and it's coming at the expense of the little guy. <clears throat> so Yes. Agree. Yeah. So let's shift to um, some m m more serious tragic stuff which is at the same time the basis of a comedy show you're you've put together which stems from the loss of your son fisher back in 2009 he was a twin and uh he died and one of the twins lived and he died of sepsis can you just describe briefly what sepsis is i mean it basically just means that he has like uh, an infection that takes over like so an infection the sepsis is sort of a result of other issues in his body so he had what's called a volvulus which means that his intestines detached from the wall of his abdomen and they twisted and they perforated so the stuff that's supposed to be traveling through his digestive system is now it's now free in his abdomen and it basically leads to like a whole body infection effectively and in many cases, sepsis is is fatal. He died when he was 34 days old. That's right. About four years ago, you wrote something which you put on Twitter, which sort of launched you into a new performative journey <clears throat> with this tragedy that you've, you've been living with. And I want to read something. It's going to take a, a little bit of time. I've digested it, but it, it, I, I want my listeners to hear it because it's really important. You wrote, 10 years ago today, my son died, and I basically never talk about it with anyone other than my wife. It's taken me 10 years to realize that I want to talk about it all the time. Most of the conversations we have about grieving are very, very weird. Tragedy is still so taboo, even in the era of the overshare. It's all very sorry for your loss. 
and tilted heads and cards with calligraphy on them and whispering, we're all on tiptoes all the time, but grief is not one thing. It's a galaxy of emotions, most of which are put in orbit by the loss of someone you loved and the harrowing or not circumstances surrounding that loss. But we only get to talk about one part publicly, the sadness. But there is more. Some things make me angry. When the hospital prepared us for his death, one of the doctors kept saying, your daughter, repeatedly. And I said through gritted teeth, he's a boy. Some things made me confused. We cremated our son. How the fuck does that work? Like, what are the steps one through ten of that process? Some things make me laugh. The funeral home handed us a receipt after our son's funeral that said, quote, thank you and come again at the bottom. Grief is isolating, but not just because of the sadness, and also because the sadness is the only part about it that anyone knows. Not a single person has ever been unkind about my son, but almost no one considers the fullness of his loss and how complicated and weird and everything else it was and continues to be. Having just recently started talking to other grievers, I know many of them feel the same. If you are grieving, you are not alone. When I read that, I, I, I fell to the floor because I, I think I told you when we first started chatting about coming on that my wife, Adrienne Shelley, who was an actor and filmmaker, she was brutally murdered in 2006. And the things that you write, the things that you feel, the things that you've experienced, it was like you're speaking my language. And I've said myself over the last 17 years over and over again, that process I guess it's just uncomfortable for people. And it's like going to a foreign country. If you don't speak the language, you're going to awkwardly knock your way through town. But it's when you do t meet other people who are grieving and who've experienced that, especially tragedy, sudden death. It's a whole different world, isn't it? It really is. And I think the, the metaphor you used about a foreign language, I think, is really apt because it is like, you know, you show up someplace and you speak this language that the people there don't speak, but they're lovely. And they're like, you know, they're listening to you and they're talking, you know, it's like you're in France and you're everybody's you speak French and they don't. But they're like, you know, they've taken some 101. So they know a couple of verbs here and there. And then a Frenchman walks in and you're like, oh, fuck, thank God, because now we now you now you understand like the nuance, everything I'm talking about. And as I said, everybody, everybody's been nice. No one ever said a thing that I was like, how dare you, even if the things were. I found them to be repetitive or tedious or whatever. It was all said with love. But when you have the opportunity to engage with someone who who speaks the same language, it changes everything. And one of the things that had precipitated this set of tweets was a conversation I had with another comedian in a bar somewhere. And I made a joke about her dad. And she, she said, my dad's dead. And I was like, oh, shit, I, like, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. I'm so sorry. And I think in most contexts, that's the end of that conversation. But because for whatever reason, Fisher was on my mind, maybe I said to her, how did he die? And she told me about it. And then I said, tell me about your dad. And then we talked for an hour about her dad and like how funny he was and how he could be a piece of shit sometimes. I think, and I want to speak for her, that it's a moment where you like feel seen and that you can express the, these thoughts that you've had that no one wants to know about because it walks them up to the edge of this conception of the end of their lives or the end of their loved ones' lives that is really, truly like destabilizing and terrifying. 
Did you ask a question? <laughs> I don't remember what the point of this was. I just asked you if you saw the Lakers game, and I don't know. You went off on a whole <laughs> grief tangent. No, been talking then, for forty-five minutes. People do give you platitudes because I think they don't really know what else to say or do because they're nice, because they're kind, and they mean well. But like when they'll say things like, you know, God had a plan; it's God's will, whatever. And you're like, well, that's a fucked up plan, you know. I think that those platitudes make sense on their face, but as you examine them, you're like, wait, hang on, I don't think I actually know what this means. Like, right, God had a, okay, so then, which is, I think, a nice thing to say, because they're trying to say to you, like, it's going to be okay. This right. is this is going to work out for you. But then when you go, well, like, what was the plan? No one wants to answer that question. No right. one wants to say, God's plan was for your wife to be murdered. God's plan was for your son to die suddenly. Like, that's... Obviously, if you press them on that, they're going to be like, ah, never mind. I wish I hadn't said that thing about the plan. Well, it's I like think there's so much of our lives that we accept. You know, you hear it for the first time and you're like, that sounds good. And you don't really examine it. And once you get into it, you're like, oh, I don't think I understood the, what I just said at all. No, it's so weird because I think like often they don't even understand it, but it's just so ingrained. Like you'll watch the news and like a, a horrible thing happens, like a, a school bus goes off a cliff, and, but like one kid lives and they'll interview the one kid's parents. God was looking out for Johnny that day. And it's like, well, you know, those, those other 49, I don't really care about them. I only care about Johnny. Like, if you try to go to that next logical step and have them explain how it doesn't make any sense, they can't because they've never gone that, that deep. It's like saying he's in a better place, you know? Really? Yeah. Than being with his parents? <laughs> like, that's, give him a right. choice. He's probably like, no, I'll stay right here with my mom and dad. Or another one is, you know, people used to say to me all the time, it's going to be okay. And I'd be like, it's not. <laughs> and so when I see friends who have gone through something, like if somebody just dies, tra I'd be like, it's not going to be okay. In fact, it's really going to suck. It's going to suck so fucking bad, you're going to want to throw yourself off a roof. But at, at some point down the road, it will start to get better. And you'll maybe crawl yeah. back into some semblance of what your life looks like. But just prepare for the fucking ugly right now, maybe for the next six months. I had a friend who did that for me because years prior, his son had hung himself and I had gone through that with him. But then he came to me when Adrian died and he was like, this is what it's going to look like. This is how much you'll cry, blah, blah, blah. He laid out a roadmap and I had that and then I had all the people going, it's going to be okay. But the people I listened to were the ones who had been through it because they weren't giving platitudes. And I needed to understand what it was really going to be like. I don't want anybody telling me it's going to be okay because I wasn't feeling okay. It certainly didn't feel like it was going to be okay. And I'm sure you went through the same kind of thing. It's absolutely like that. And I think that the other thing that happened in that time was all these people coming out of the woodwork to tell us about miscarriages, stillbirths, et cetera, that like I've, I'd seen these people every day for years. Like I, used, I worked at a tutoring company and the number of people at my job who were like, you know, messaged me privately or, you know, we invited pretty much the whole company to the funeral after the funeral who would say, you know, we don't tell anybody this, but, you know, I miscarried twice or we had a daughter who was stillborn. And it's like, oh, shit, this is there's so many people who have had some version mm -hmm. of this happen, but it is locked away because they all feel exactly how you just articulated that everybody comes up to them and says some kind of platitude. And you're like, oh. The thing you can tell from the platitude is that this person that you're speaking to does not have the capacity to be real with you in this moment. And that 
makes sense. I understand why it would be like that. I, I had a person come to the show recently and afterwards I know her and I was like, you know, how's, how are, how are your kids? And she said, well, you know, they're still alive. So that's good. And at, there's two parts of my brain. One <laughs> is that's a, a fucked up thing to say, but the other part is that is what you really thought while you were watching this. And it, it brings me a level of comfort to know that we can talk for real. Mm -hmm. You can tell me what you really think. Otherwise, when you get in the face of a lot of like, sorry for your loss, et cetera, you feel like now you have to perform some conversation where neither one of you has anything to add. And so we're just going to spend five minutes pretend, oh yeah, you know, he is in a better place. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever. To have, to have one, the people who understand because they've been through it, that's the, that's the most comforting case. But a close second is someone who will just be real with you and be like, God damn, like I heard this thing about your son and it's just the fucking worst thing I can possibly imagine. Right. And that that to me was like, okay, I can trust you to have a real talk with me, even if you don't get it. Right. You need that authenticity. You need to be able, when you're in your darkest place, to have people that you feel safe talking to. And the reason you feel safe is because you know they can handle that darkness, that reality. But there are people that just don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They don't, you know, time heals all. You know, it's like, if I had heard that one more time, I thought I was going, <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Closure. We recently had uh, Griffin Dunn on the pod and his mm -hmm. sister, Dominique, was murdered back in the 80s. And he said, closure is a, is a term, it's a concept that was created by someone who never experienced grief. <laughs> yeah. Closure to me is like, Someone who hasn't experienced it being like, at one, at some point, you will shut the fuck up about this. <laughs> like trying to encourage you to get to a place where you didn't have to bring it up anymore. Yeah. Like you'll be driving in the, on the highway and you'll hear that song that you and your wife dance to and it won't make you cry anymore because you have yeah. closure. And you won't even care. Right. <laughs> you said death is kind of like you crumble up a piece of paper and then uncrumple it, and you're like, oh shit, this will never be flat again. Which is really a great way to describe it. But you learn how to move forward and continue the love that you have from other places in your life. But that's why, to me, closure is such a weird concept, because it's crumpled paper. That part of you will never be flat again. Is that what you were thinking when you... Yeah, I think so. And I think to, to use your closure thing, it is someone else saying, no, no, just you just keep smoothing it out. It'll The paper will get flat. And you're like, I'm all... No matter, I can smooth this out forever. I can put it under an iron. I can do anything. I will always see the like the the folds here. They'll be here forever. And I think that, like when I think about that paper being crumpled, I do think like, or you know, you drop your candy on the ground, and now it's on the ground, and now that's ground candy. You know what I mean? Like it's there's some things that can never go back, mm -hmm. and like that death obviously being one of them. Right, and you you can't obviously get a new piece of paper, can you? Right. But people you, will I tell mean, you, oh, you, you can. can. You can get, you'll, someday you'll get a new yeah. piece of paper. You just get a new piece of paper. Or, you know, you can eat that candy on the ground. It actually tastes the same. Yeah. Just just pick it up. It's going to taste the same as it did before. Yeah. This tastes like gravel. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and the paper, the new piece of paper, it won't be the same. It'll be different. <laughs> but you'll have a new piece of paper. So exactly. you took your experience and you started a podcast called A Good Cry. And the concept of that is what? It's just to talk to people about their relationship to grief and how it has metamorphed for them over 
the course of however long it's been since some tragedy happened to them. And also because a lot of people I speak to are friends of mine and therefore they are comedians. It's a way to get inside the concept of it without necessarily only feeling the abject sadness, which we do feel like you'll, if you listen to the podcast, there are definitely episodes where I or the person I'm interviewing, like one of us will just start crying. But there are also parts of it where it's like, you know, you talk about either an experience you had during it or like all the absurd shit that surrounds the commemoration of a dead person or the way you think of things now that are like funny and joyful and to, uh, I, I want to, want to say unfold because we've been talking about paper so much, but just try to unfold the experience of tragedy somewhat to let people see that one, you're, if you're listening to this and you've gone through something, you're not the only person here are all these other people. And also if you laughed or if you had a good time the day after your dad died, that's not crazy. That doesn't make you an insane person. You still remain a human being. You talk about comedians. And I used to do stand-up back in the day. Everything is funny to me, even death. And I think it's it's what saved me over the years was being able to balance the grief and the horror and all that with a sense of humor about it all. Because I think a lot of people don't know how to navigate that space. It's like, if you're grieving, you can't be funny. You can't be laughing because if you're laughing, then you're not grieving and you know, you're know you supposed to be grieving. And it's always been a gift that I think I have that I don't think about it. I just am who I am. And if I want to laugh one minute or cry the next minute or make a joke about crying or make a joke about my wife's murder or whatever, like I do that for me. And I think it's also made people around me comfortable. It's just easier to get through because of the levity of it all. You said a lot there that's like really interesting to me. One of the things about comedy is it makes whatever else is happening tolerable. Like if you can find a little like spark of humor, even in the worst thing, in order for you to take medicine, you have to be able to tolerate it, right? If it's too strong, you're just going to, you're going to throw it up. It's not, you won't be able to drink it. And so I think that comedy is that like, you know, spoonful of sugar or or whatever to quote. Julie Andrews, who I'm sure is, I don't know who wrote that, but, uh, but I nice, think- Nice that, reference, by uh, the way. <laughs> but I think all, another way of putting that is a thing that my wife has, my wife is a nurse now, is that like dose makes the poison. In other words, everything, many things are okay unless you take too much of it. Right. And comedy, and like in my show, for example, is a way of going, I'm about to give you this incredibly profoundly sad story but if I parcel it out to you in pieces and in between give you a little space to like recover from it, to maybe even find a laugh, it'll make the whole thing totally tolerable for you. And that is one of the gifts, I think, of comedy. As far as jokes about, like, I'm careful about where I put the jokes because to me, the death, the death itself, right? That's not funny to me. That doesn't make me laugh. But there are aspects of what happened around that time that really were funny to me. And I don't want to pretend that they didn't happen. Yeah. When you mentioned the funeral parlor, please come again thing. When I went to the chapel to prepare Adrian's funeral, uh, at one point, a woman said, and what kind of music would you like to play? I'm like, <laughs> music? We the disco? Like what? 
I couldn't in that <laughs> moment because I was, this was four days after I just found my wife murdered and someone's asking me to like pick a song. And I, and I was like, what are you talking music? And she goes, when you walk from your family room into the, and I was like, oh my God, this is so weird. And then I was like, oh, a song. Okay. And then I started thinking, but like that first 30 seconds, it was like, what is this? This isn't a wedding. What do you got? A DJ coming in? Like it just, <laughs> and there were moments like that of humor. Oh God. You know, where you just have to sort of appreciate the goofiness of it all, you know? Yes. When, when it's there. And it is being, in the funeral part of it too, it's like those people have a job to do. And like, they are going to, they're going to play music. That there's going to be some kind of music. And you know that they have a playlist of like, <laughs> Well, when some you know someone falls off Wayne a truck, Newton these are the songs we usually play for the people who fall off the truck. And if someone drowns, we have some drowning songs. Just the the idea of playlists for that are death specific is very funny to me. It was a weird concept, but totally made sense. And you know, humor just humor overall when it comes to this kind of stuff. I remember Adrian and I went to a funeral once, and then we had to drive out to Long Island to go to a cemetery and. We get to the booth and there's just a guy who we, just classic central casting, black suit, you know, just very serious. And he's like, can I help you? And I said, yeah, we're here for a funeral. And he said, may I ask which one? And I shrugged my shoulders and I was like, I don't know. What do you recommend? And he looked at me like he <laughs> wanted to take out a gun and shoot me in the head. And then we drove away and we had the biggest laugh. And it was like a, it was a close friend too. So it wasn't like it, it was some extraneous relationship. The comedy for us in the moment just was that balance thing. It was funny. And we just kind of had a funny moment together, even though we were literally about to watch someone get put in the ground. And I guess not everybody's able to do that. And I don't judge people who can't, but I can't imagine yeah, I think getting through I, a tragedy without that. You know? Yeah. I think it's not everybody's able to do it. And some people don't want to do that, but they don't want to. And that's like you say, that's fine. That if that's if that's like your if your thing is like that you approach death with a uh, or grief with a complete seriousness, and that's what helps you cope or or right. whatever, that's great for you. Then do that. That's that's not us, but other people, and that's great. Good yeah. for them. Let's talk about sorry for your loss. Which, by the way, I'm going to be seeing I think in a week, maybe two weeks, with my kids, and really looking forward to it. And you started. Writing this show right at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. So just before everything got shut down, and which is not too far distant from when I had that tweet that you read, I'm doing stand up and I'm doing stand up about, you know, whatever, the sort of topics that were funny to me, but not profoundly interesting in any way. At the same time, I'm on stage thinking about my son. And that's like what some part of like my soul or whatever, not to dramatize it too much, wants to talk about that. So concurrently, the Asian Comedy Festival, of which I'm sure you are a huge fan, and if you're not, you should be. The Asian Comedy Festival asked me if I had a show that I wanted to put up at this place called the People's Improv Theater for an hour. And I said, I've been thinking about doing this show about my son and it's about death and would that be okay? And they said, do whatever the fuck you want. So I did. I went to this Asian comedy festival, and because it was that, I front-loaded it with like 15 minutes of jokes about being Filipino. And then it took a hard right turn into wanting to talk about my, my son and about grief. And that's what I did. And the show, I think, was bad. I mean, it was, I would say at that time, it was, it was not good. But there were elements of it that felt promising to me, by which I mean they felt 
truthful. Like they were getting at something that I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is audio record every iteration of the show. And then from that audio recording, like, you know, just kind of pick the parts I liked and discard the parts I didn't like until after doing that many times, sometimes live at like a, you know, a comedy club in Pittsburgh or in LA or whatever. And sometimes excruciatingly over Zoom, I would do, I did the whole show over Zoom a couple of times and that was tough because you're doing it to no response. But eventually that just sort of like, you know, whittled its way down into what the show is now. And it's interesting because we've had Gary Goleman on the pod. Gary suffers from mental illness and he did a whole special about- I think it was HBO, The Great Depression you're talking about? The Great Depression. Mark Maron's yeah. Lynn Shelton died and he incorporated that a lot into his recent comedy special as well. Liz Glazer had a debut stand-up album called A Very Particular Experience about the stillbirth of her daughter. John Mulaney is now on a comedy special talking about addiction. Tignataro came out and said, thank you. I have cancer. Thank you. It seems like there's a real move towards comedians bringing more of their life into their work and finding that it's working because the truth is, whether it's ourselves or in our family, we have death, we have mental illness, we have breast cancer, we have all the things that comics talk about. But it used to be where like, oh, it's a comedy show. You can't talk about that stuff. I'm paying all this money to go see a show. I don't hear a guy talk about his, his anxiety. But if it's funny and you really get to know the performer, it's so relatable, isn't it, to do that? I don't want, I hope so. What, for me, it felt like I had no choice. Like at a certain point, it was just like, I'm thinking about this all the time. There is no way for me to keep getting on stage, you know, five nights a week or whatever and doing jokes about pornography and not to feel like I've disassociated from my body. So it was something that I felt like I had to do. And you mentioned all those amazing people who have done shows or specials before what I'm doing who are, you know, idols to me, who are like, you know, that's the kind of stuff that inspired me to believe as that this could be done. That there is a way to walk someone through the darkness if you're kind of lighting the path with jokes a little bit. And so, yeah, I, every single one of those things that you've mentioned, I, I love them. I would add, I think something that's sort of controversial, weirdly, in the comedy community was Nanette. I don't know if you saw Nanette, Hannah Gadsby's special. No, I'm writing it down. It's, it is, I think... As I recall, the reception of the Gadsby special was somewhat polarizing because a lot of comedians were like, well, this isn't stand-up. There's a couple of times in here where she's not even trying to be funny. And I think that is true. I think if you came to if you came to Nanette thinking like, oh, it's gonna be, you know, joke on joke on joke on joke, you I could see you being disappointed. But if you sort of came to it being like, well, whatever this is, I'm ready to experience it. I think it's kind of amazing. And I understand the people who wouldn't like it. Like, I, I respect that. Forgetting even now Nanette, but like my show, I can understand someone coming to a comedy show and seeing my show and being like, well, fuck you, man. I came to a sushi restaurant and you served me a, a boot or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I, why isn't this what I asked for? So I get I get that people would be uncomfortable or even annoyed by 
someone trying to do something that isn't what they expect. But hopefully people can have an open enough mind to whatever, particularly in like a theater, which is where this show is, I'm putting theater in quotes, that they'll be expecting a more of an experience that isn't just, you know, 1500 cleverly, cleverly crafted jokes. Well, it kind of harkens back to the days of Richard Pryor when he would talk about his heart attacks and his addictions. And there were stretches where he would just be talking about shit and it wasn't jokey. And then the jokes would come and it was brilliant and it tied it all together. And you got to know this guy and you got to feel his pain and the pain that he was still going through. And it was okay to laugh about it with him. And that's what he wanted you to do. And that's what made him lovable. And that's what made him one of the greatest stand-ups, if not the greatest stand-up ever. And I think we're sort of coming full circle. We're getting away from a comic getting up on stage and just being ha-ha funny, you know, set a punchline. A comic is now giving you a piece of them. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, yes, Pryor is a god-tier comedian. And I just, I think that there is some element of specificity in performers that I'm always curious to see Whenever I watch them, do you know Jacqueline Novak? Do you know who that is? No, right now she's a, she's a stand-up. Her show is not at all sad, but she has a show called Get on Your Knees, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that it is an hour-long, almost like meditation on blowjobs. My favorite and genre of comedy. <laughs> when I there's almost no way for me to convey to you how brilliant her hour is, but it's like. It's as if like Dorothy Parker and Oscar Wilde and William Faulkner got together and wrote an hour, like just deep exegesis on the on blowjobs. And it's so I mean, it's so uproariously funny and also so precise. And obviously it's a different category of thing from what I'm talking about. But the thing that I really admire about it and Nanette and so many of these other things we've brought up is that it's of that person. Only Jacqueline Novak can do this show. Mm. If you if you you know lifted those jokes and said, you know what we'll do is we'll have Sarah Silverman perform them, it wouldn't. Sarah Silverman's one of the greatest comedians of all right. time. Right. It wouldn't feel right. It would feel like it, this doesn't belong to her. Nanette is that same way. There's a lot of shows like that, and I to me that's my favorite kind of show. My favorite kind of show as a comedian is I want to see what you can do that nobody else can do. And that is like what really gets me going. There are other people who are joke writers who are like craftsmen at the absolute top of joke writing that I also, I really love, but it doesn't feel like to me, and anybody can have their own opinion, doesn't feel like a meal when I've, when I've watched something like that. When I watch a, a thousand jokes, even if they're amazing jokes, I still feel like hungry for something else. When you leave a show and you feel like you got inside the performer, you got a window into their soul and you laughed and maybe you cried. That's the best kind of entertainment. And when the person shares, you know, whether it's prior talking about lighting himself on fire, which is not exactly a day at the beach, you know, uh, a <laughs> tragic experience, but he, he brings you along. And so many other performers have done a similar thing. But again, it's not for everybody. In, in our last couple of minutes, uh, you wrote something which resonates with me because it kind of encapsulates 
this whole conversation. And that is, you said, you feel lucky to have your surviving son, Truman, your daughter, Willa, your wife, Carrie, but the pain of losing Fisher is often silently present, which gets us back to closure, but it also gets us back to that ability to move forward. When I was in therapy after Adrian died, uh, I kept saying, why, 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 why? And the therapist was like, look, you can just keep banging your head in the wall and asking why, but the only answer is shit happens. And I was like, really? I'm paying you all this money for shit happens? (laughs) Did you learn that in medical school? Shit happens? And she said, that's the only answer. And I was like, wow, she's right. She's right. Shit happens because there is no other answer. And she said, what's the rest of your life like? I said, well, work is great. Family's great. She goes, just build from there. And that's like you talking about Truman and Willa and Carrie. You're building your life. You're moving forward. But Fisher is, he's always there. And he's going to always be there. And he should be there. But someone said to me after Adrian died, there will come a day when you think of Adrian, rather than the default being tears, you'll smile. And that was the whole turn for me when I got to that point where I can think of her and go, yeah, wow, she was funny. She was great. She made me laugh all the time. Instead of that raw pain. Are you there now or are you still wanting to get to that place? Sure, sure. No, no, I understand. The answer to your question is that there were many, yeah, many years when the thought of him was a punch in the gut, right? And as time goes on, I think about him by accident less. Like more when I think of him now, it's more purposeful. Like I, I like when I'm doing my show, so I think about him every single night for hours and hours. But if I weren't doing the show, there's maybe more time passes in the day where I don't think about him. And so now when I accidentally have a thought about him, even if it is deeply sad to me, now the sadness is sweet. I love that. I love to have a moment where I'm walking down the street and some song plays out of somebody's car and my brain goes, oh, that's by not even the same song. That's by the same guy who wrote a song that was playing in the hospital while you were there. And I just start crying for a second. And that is like the, it, the, the, the sadness that sets in there, that melancholy now feels like an homage to him. It's like a memory that ties me to him that I feel lucky to have. And that's because it's not overwhelming like it used to be, where the level of sadness was so above my head that it's like, I need to be away from everybody. I, need, I don't want to talk to anyone for a couple hours. Now I've, it's reached a point of tolerable where I don't know if I'm smiling, although sometimes I am. Sometimes I am. Even if I'm not smiling, the sadness has a sweetness to it that it didn't have before. Well, in closing, I'm not going to say I'm sorry for your loss, but I'd rather say thank you for sharing your loss because that's thank you truly meaningful. And I am so looking forward to seeing your show, which is called Sorry for Your Loss at the Manetta Lane Theater in New York. And uh, thank you for coming on. You've been very generous with your time and very honest with your recollections and feelings. It, it I think it's important for people to hear that stuff. So thank you. Thank you. And hope you'll come back sometime. Would love to. All righty. Take care, Michael. 
Bye-bye. That's episode 79. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. It's also helpful if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Crooked Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Michael Cruz Kane. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. Thank you.